Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 13 and reading the closing verses of uh, this chapter. And so we will be reading from verse 8 until the end of the chapter. And so if you will turn there with me and let us read together. Paul says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of this sinful nature. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We come today to the conclusion of this section of Paul's letter. After 11 chapters in which he articulates the doctrine found within uh, the gospel of Christ, Paul spends two chapters then explaining the way in which this life-changing doctrine is manifested in Christ's disciples. In response to All that God has done on our behalf in Christ, we are called upon to present our bodies unto God as a living sacrifice and to submit our thinking to the Word of God. He began chapter 12 by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That opening statement then leads Paul to the practical implications of it all. He speaks first of the gifts of grace with which God has endowed believers for their life together within the church. He speaks of the characteristics that Mark those who have been made alive in Christ and how we are to engage with other believers. But he also speaks of the behaviors which believers should embody in their interactions with unbelievers, as well as the ways in which we are to respond when we are the targets of their anger and their persecution. And what he lays out is truly challenging, particularly if we have been slow to follow his opening admonition 
to surrender ourselves wholly unto God, who desires to sanctify us and shape us more and more into the image of his Son. And then when we last met, we examined Paul's admonitions concerning the attitudes of believers towards those in authority, noting that behind all of their temporal authority exists a divine and eternal authority who will in the end set all things to right. As the disciples of Christ, we are to live in submission to such authority, trusting in God's providential care, even if we are called upon to suffer under rulers as did Christ Jesus at the hand of Roman authorities. Now all this precedes our text for today as Paul brings this section to a close, reminding us once again of the governing principle for all believers, which is this agape love which he has spoken of throughout his letter, but he emphasizes it seven times in these two chapters alone. Owe no one anything, he says, except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now there are those who make an argument from this verse that it is wrong for Christians to ever enter into a financial obligation where they have borrowed money either long-term or short-term. If that were true, it would make it nigh unto impossible for Christians to ever own their own home or to ever own a car or to even use a credit card to pay for dinner. That's not what Paul is saying here. That being said, I do not want to suggest that Paul is blessing the kind of financial indebtedness that many Christians assume when their eyes grow larger than their stomachs and they experience that awful monetary burden which impedes their ability to attend to things of the kingdom. Dave Ramsey speaks a great deal of truth in this regard and I will refer you to his teaching about fiscal responsibility and not deal with that here and now. But to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to understand this verse 8 in the context of the previous verse which we read when we were last together. Verse 7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So verse 8 is not a financial caution or warning so much as it is a guiding principle to live responsibly and submissively, exhibiting a lifestyle where we not only pay our financial obligations in a timely fashion, but we also live honestly and humbly before others, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, not seeking to put ourselves first, but displaying the kind of sacrificial love that has been freely extended to us by God in Christ Jesus. Keep in mind that Paul is still articulating the implications of our having been made new creations. Paul is still describing the new life of those who have been set free from their bondage to sin 
and by the power of God's indwelling spirit, are worshiping God every day by their service to Him. As recipients of this unique agape love, we know something that the world struggles to imagine. And that is this, that it is possible by faith in Christ to experience a cleansing forgiveness that transforms a person from the inside out. The world cannot truly understand this, for there's nothing in their experience that can ever match what God has done in Christ. So, when Christians engage in acts of sacrificial love, of emulating the essence of Christ washing the feet of His disciples, that does not compute with the world. The waitress who has just received a $2,500 tip on a check for $25.89 does not understand why a person would do that. Except the Christian she was serving happened to overhear that she was late to work today because she was hit by an uninsured motorist and her car was totaled. And when the story of the extraordinary tip is picked up by the local news, no one cares to know the motivation of the diner. The conclusion of the story is, people are so nice. For the disciples of Christ, this godly love is to be our overriding motivation for all that we do. And if it is, the keeping of the law then is not an issue. You will notice that Paul mentions some of the commandments taken from the second table of the law here. And he does this to make the point that the legalistic trap we can fall into is completely avoided once we are motivated to love our neighbor the way we have been loved by God in Christ. If you are seeking to always love your neighbor as you have been loved by God, it will never enter your mind to bear false witness towards your neighbor, nor will you seek to cause him mortal harm or to take what is his or to even want what is his. And this, Paul says, is how we keep the law without even thinking about it. If you truly love your neighbor, you will never stumble over any of these commands nor get entangled in some kind of obsessive scrupulosity about them. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law, he says. Now, Paul does inject here a sense of urgency about all of this. He doesn't simply wrap up the whole discussion here about love by admonishing us to be like this. He also issues a warning that time is of the essence. As believers, we should not procrastinate when it comes to putting these things into practice. We should recognize that the amount of time we have been gifted is an unknown to us. But what is not unknown to us is, one, Christ is coming again, and two, we are all going to die. When Paul declares, besides this you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed, he says this to people who do know the promises that Jesus has made as well as the testimony of the angels that was made to the first disciples. The passage we read from Mark 13 earlier in the service addressed the issue of the signs that would take place before Christ's return. 
And Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus said on the night before he was crucified, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The angels said at Christ's ascension, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Now the saints in Rome knew and understood these promises that Christ would come again as the King of all kings. And while no one knew the day or the hour of that return, they knew that the master of the house had left for a period of time, but that he would return. And it was incumbent upon the servants of the house to stay awake and be busy with their responsibilities. Now Paul is tapping into all that. And reminding these believers of what they know to be true and is urging them to focus on the things of the kingdom and the very real transformation that is taking place in them through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not invoking the kind of ominous warning parents use on their kids as Christmas approaches in order to keep them in line. He is encouraging these saints to cooperate with the work that God is already doing in them by means of the Spirit. Because to do otherwise is to long for the leeks and the onions in Egypt. Now, do you know that Old Testament reference? After God had set the Hebrews free from the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt and was providing for their needs by means of the daily bread from heaven, the manna, There were those who complained that life with the Lord guiding them was just awful. They longed for the food that they had in Egypt, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, the melons, the meat. Forget the slavery they endured. Forget the daily toil making bricks for Pharaoh's building projects. Forget the fact that they were essentially chain gangs. They were sick and tired of manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they wanted meat to eat, and they completely ignored the fact that they were in the daily presence of the Lord God Almighty who was leading them to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now Paul is advocating for a right understanding here of what God has done on our behalf. God has set us free from the clutches of sin. He has adopted us into His family. He has made us fellow heirs with Christ. He is transforming us more and more into the image of His only begotten Son. He is leading us to the day when every vestige of sin will be eradicated in us, when our resurrected bodies will have been made new, and we will inhabit a new earth where God Himself has come down to dwell with us. And He says that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
The night is far gone. The day is at hand. How foolish is the person who looks longingly to their old life before Christ and does not press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is advocating for a right understanding of our position in Christ and is seeking to help everyone understand that what lies ahead is so much better and perfect and greater than what lies behind, that it is sheer foolishness to want and desire the past. Now this is quite the image that Paul sets before us here when he speaks of the night and the day. If you've ever had the experience of sitting up all night outdoors with a new moon, enjoying the stars, waiting for the sun to rise, you know that even in that darkness, your eyes soon become accustomed to the dark and you begin to see things that you did not notice when you first stepped outdoors. But as the hours pass and you watch Orion's belt move across the sky, there's that moment when you notice that the darkness of the western horizon is greater than the dark on the eastern horizon. And you begin to realize that day is breaking. And with each passing minute, the light grows more and more until there is that moment when the first beam of sunlight hits your eye and the day has begun. Paul is declaring that the time in which we live must be thought of this way. That the night is far gone, that the day is at hand, And therefore, he says, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Before we were spiritually resurrected from the dead and made alive in Christ, the things we practiced were all associated with the night. Even those things that we would have labeled as good were, in fact, evil in the eyes of God, for their motivation was all wrong. We didn't do those things for the right reasons. We had ulterior motives. Our motivations were not pure. The prophet Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. But when the Holy Spirit freed our wills from the bondage of sin, We not only gained the ability to resist temptation, but we also gained the ability to do what is right in God's sight. And so when Paul urges the saints in Rome to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, this is not an impossibility, hard though it may be at times. This is an encouragement to press on toward the goal. He's like the spectator in the arena cheering on the believer to keep running towards the finish line. But though we have been made new in Christ, it isn't that it is impossible for us to fall back into sinful behavior. It is. That's the issue. You'll remember back in chapter 7, Paul made the point that sin still dwells within these members of ours. And the only one who can rescue us from this wretched condition as he describes it, is Jesus Christ. And so when we sin, it does not mean that we should question our salvation. It means that we should look to Christ to help us. Which is why Paul says here, 
to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. Now this is a picture that should be burned into our brains for it is most helpful in turning away from sin and all its temptations. My guess would be that most all of us have a decision to make fairly early every morning and that is, what shall I wear today? And the answer to that question will largely be determined by what's on the agenda for the day. If today we have to go to the office and we happen to be the president of the bank, it probably will involve a coat and a tie. But if we're a football coach, it probably involves sweatpants and running shoes. Or if we are a builder of homes, it probably involves jeans and a t-shirt and steel-toed work boots. If we're retired, it probably means staying in your PJs all day. At least that's what I'm hoping. But if we're going to be successful in this life, we need to dress appropriately. A defense attorney who shows up to a court appearance dressed in his PJs will be found to be in contempt of court. A doctor who tries to perform heart surgery in dirty jeans covered in grease and grime will lose his license to practice. And so it is with Christians who do not dress for spiritual success. Now we could spend an entire sermon on this subject for Paul and others say much about this act of putting on that which is necessary to walk properly as in the daytime. The Greek word in duo here means to clothe or to put on and we find it throughout the New Testament. Jesus says just prior to his ascension and behold I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed in duo and clothed with power from on high. Paul writes to the Galatians, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have in duo, have put on Christ. He says to the Ephesians in chapter 4, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then two chapters later, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And Paul writes similarly to the Colossians and to the Thessalonians. The point here is that in order for us to walk properly as in the daytime, we need to realize that this is not something we can do in our own strength. But it requires a dependence upon 
the spiritual power with which God has endowed every believer. When we look at the spiritual armor that Paul articulates in Ephesians 6, we see that it involves our understanding of the truth, about our having the righteousness of Christ as a breastplate. It involves a clear understanding of the gospel of peace. It involves a a right understanding of faith to shield us as well as an assurance of our salvation, the helmet of salvation. It, It requires a ready knowledge of the Scriptures and an active prayer life. All these things are the results of believers giving themselves wholeheartedly to God and then participating in the ordinary means of grace. In other words, being devoted to apostolic teaching, breaking bread with the saints in worship, gathering in fellowship with those who love Jesus, and enjoying the fellowship of the Lord in prayer. Beloved, all these things will help to strengthen us in the Lord and be dressed for success in the kingdom of God. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment together as we pray.